Mark chapter 9, verses 14. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing about? What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who was possessed with a spirit that was robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground, rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If I can, Jesus said, everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said. I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Mark. That is our text for this morning. Um, before we, uh, we get there, um, I want to just remind us what we've kind of been walking through for the last few uh, weeks, I guess. It's been about six weeks now. We're at the end of our series called Future Fruit. Uh, we kicked it off, actually, uh, a number of weeks ago, uh, being reminded that God often asks us to plant trees from which we may never eat the fruit of. Trees from which we may never enjoy the shade of, but we plant those trees for the generations that are coming up behind us. And we believe that God is actually calling our church to begin thinking what that's going to mean and look like. Uh, then Austin asked us the question, uh, are we simply laying bricks or are we building a cathedral? We then spent some time talking about the fact that uh, God has implanted in every single one of us as individuals and also in us as a congregation, certain talents and investment that he's given to us that he expects us to now risk the talents for him. Not simply for our glory, but for his and so that others will begin to experience what we have experienced. And then last week, Austin talked to us about what it means to find our purpose, what God's actually called us into and how we might begin to do that. And then today, we're going to be uh, actually doing something that um, is a little different for me. Uh, and so I'm just going to invite you into this space uh, along with me. But uh, it all kind of came about, uh, I don't know, four months ago. Uh, I listened to a sermon um, from one of my favorite uh, 
pastors, uh, teachers, John Mark Comer out in uh, Portland, Oregon. And after I listened to that sermon, I felt the Holy Spirit say uh, to me that that was something that I needed to engage with more and more and really make that a part of my core, my soul, my heart, my mind. And I felt like the Holy Spirit say, and I need my church to hear this. And I was like, yeah, Lord, but it ain't my sermon. And the Holy Spirit said, uh, yeah, well, drop your pride and preach his sermon because my church needs to hear it. And so what I'm going to give you today, uh, the content is not mine, and I'm okay with that. But the content is from the Holy Spirit. And a uh, little insider note, uh, anything I give you is not mine. Uh, I'm always uh, borrowing from other folks uh, from past history to today. So what I'm going to do is invite you into a space where I'm going to do more teaching today than I am preaching. I'm going to ask you to take notes. If you have a pen or paper, or sorry, if you need a pen uh, to take some notes with today, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand. We've got some folks that are going to walk down and hand out uh, pens if you'd like that. Um, you're welcome, though, to grab your phone, too, if you'd rather do that. You can pull out your phone, open up your uh, notes app. You can take notes there. Um, some of the stuff's going to be up on the screen, and you might just want to actually take a picture. That might actually work out a little bit easier for some of these things. Uh, then you can go back and, and, and reference it later. Uh, I think we've even got some little pieces of paper that uh, they're passing out as well, uh, if you need that. We all have fears, okay? Uh, I've got lots of different fears. But I will tell you, uh, one of uh, my biggest fears was especially when I was a kid. Uh, when we were growing up in Flint, we had a basement that had those little tiny basement windows, okay, which means like almost no light could get into it. Uh, it was a quasi-finished basement where it was like we had a couch and a TV down there and like a little tykes like basketball hoop so that like we could like play basketball and beat up things and my parents didn't care that much and uh, a rug. And, well, the, the problem with this basement though is that especially at night it would get pitch black, like so dark, and there was only one light switch and it was downstairs. So you had to either descend into the darkest abyss to be able to turn the lights on. That, that was bad enough in itself, but for me, it was actually turning the lights off. That was always the scariest part. I would turn the lights off, and then I had to sprint up the stairs as fast as I possibly could because I knew something was trying to grab my feet. Like, it was obvious to any reasonable sane person, the, that's when the monsters come out as soon as you turn off the lights. I used to be able to get up them stairs on all fours, right? Because you couldn't just, like, I'd use my hand, everything, like, whatever it took to get up the stairs. We all have fears. Primary emotions are how we react to stimuli, Okay? primary emotions. So if you're walking through the woods, you come across a bear, you don't think to yourself, whoa, I should probably feel afraid right now. No, you simply react to the stimuli and you have a flood of fear. Same thing if you're swimming in the ocean and you look up and 10 feet away is a dorsal fin swimming towards you, right? You are not thinking, oh, I should feel fear. You are just experiencing fear. That's what we would call a primary emotion. It's an automatic response in our nervous system. So, fear, anger, happiness, embarrassment, jealousy, those are all primary emotions. The Bible never shames primary emotions. Okay? Ephesians chapter 4, be angry, but in your anger do not sin. The Bible talks about 
God himself being jealous. Uh, The Psalms actually teach us to pray our emotions, not to bottle them up. David lets his emotions rip all the time because God can handle it. He knows that when we experience primary emotions, we're not supposed to leave them bottled up inside. When we do, we actually begin to experience uh, what psychologists call secondary emotions. Those happen when we hold primary emotions in and they move us from our response to stimuli, all right, something happens and we respond to it, into an embedded way of thinking and behaving, okay? So primary emotions are the things that you feel as a response to stimuli. Secondary emotions are what happen when we have primary emotions, but we stuff them and we keep them inside. And then it begins to become a way that we think and behave. So let me give you an example of a primary emotion. Primary emotion would be uh, you were hurt by somebody, okay? If you bottle that up, it will often turn into the secondary emotion of bitterness. Primary emotion of anger when bottled up, can turn into the secondary emotion of hate. Sadness into self-pity. Fear often shows up in anxiety. Secondary emotions can take root in our lives, okay? That kind of fear is not the kind of healthy fear that God actually places in us. Fear is actually supposed to help us. It's designed to keep us alive, all right? It's the anticipation of something bad or evil as a primary emotion. It's actually a gift from God. But when those primary emotions become secondary emotions, they can transform how we think and how we act. That's not the kind of healthy fear that God gives to us. Uh, I have secondary emotions. And I know enough of you in this room to know that I'm not alone. I'm not the only one that struggles at times with these secondary emotions. John Mark Comer said this. He said, fear is arguably at the root of all our problems in the spiritual life. Why? Because the telos, that means the purpose or the goal of the spiritual journey is to become a person of love as defined by Jesus. And it is written, 1 John 4, 8, there is no fear in love. As long as we need our life to go a certain way, we will despite our best intentions, act in ways that are unloving towards anyone and anything that gets in our way. Fear is at the root of all unloving behavior and at the root of all sin. So what's the solution? I'm so glad you asked. Faith over fear. Some of y'all are feeling a certain way right now, aren't you? Faith over fear. You've heard that phrase recently, haven't you? The last couple of years, that phrase has become ubiquitous with a few different things. I think it kind of started somewhere in the American South, and it actually became kind of a protest against uh, mandatory, uh, well, I guess it was never mandatory, but vaccines or mandatory lockdowns or government overreach. And so as soon as I say something like faith over fear, instantly you begin to feel a certain way. Some of you hate that phrase. Others of you have it on your bumper sticker on your car right now, okay? I'm not talking about that kind of use of faith over fear. This has nothing to do with what side of the political spectrum you fall on. Has nothing to do with whether you're on the left or the right, conservative or progressive. Faith over fear this morning has everything to do with how we journey through the spiritual life. Benedict Groeschel, It's a Franciscan priest, 
author, psychologist. Uh, one of his titles is Retreat Master. How awesome is that? I want that as a title. He says this, the entirety of the Christian journey is a decrease in fear and an increase in faith. A decrease in fear and an increase in faith. Jesus talked about this on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, one of Jesus' most uh, famous teachings. One big chunk of it is how we're supposed to move from worry towards trust. This is the very concept of what faith means. Uh, What is faith? Let's just dive into that just real briefly so that we all are working on the same kind of understanding and definition of what faith actually is, okay? Uh, The word faith in the Greek is uh, this word uh, pistis. You'll see it up on the screen. It's got kind of a range of meanings that we use. Uh, It just means uh, faith, belief, confidence, reliance, uh, faithfulness, and it's best defined as confidence grounded in reality. Hear that. Confidence grounded in reality. Faith is not a blind leap into the dark. Way too many people think that's what faith is. Oh, man, I guess I just got to like, just, I don't know what's there, but I'm just going to jump into it. No. Uh, Faith is actually, uh, sorry, the opposite of faith is not knowledge. The opposite of faith is actually sight. All right? We can and should know some things. Uh, Faith is also not a feeling nor is it simply a mental assent. It's not just something that you feel like, man, I just got this gut feeling. I know it's the right thing. I'm going to do that. Or, no, no, I, I know I've given mental assent to these uh, certain beliefs or convictions. Now, it's not to say that faith doesn't have a feeling component or a thinking component. It does. But faith is not simply feeling or thinking. It's not just what you believe. It's not just what you feel in a moment. Faith is actually an action. The way that the Bible describes faith is faith is an action. Faith is something you do or something you don't do. Uh, Here's the kicker, though. Uh, Everybody does faith. Nobody doesn't do faith. That's just reality. Faith is not believing something for which there is no evidence, but believing something based on evidence and then living your life as though it was true. The second part of that statement is key. Faith is not believing something for which there is no evidence. It is believing something based on evidence and then living your life as though it were true. So I want to tell you a couple things about faith, okay? Got a definition of it, kind of understand what we're talking about, or at least how I'm describing it. Uh, I want to start off by saying, number one, faith is not a religious thing. Faith is a human thing. Every single person in this room, every single person in our city lives by faith. Christians do, atheists do, humanists do, Buddhists do, capitalists live by faith, communists live by faith, all right? Every single person does. It's impossible not to because faith is simply a trust and reliance on something or someone. We need faith just to like live our normal lives, all right? Uh, I'll give you an example, this stage. You know what? I've never seen what's underneath this stage. It's possible that it's been built out of balsa wood or rotting pieces of who knows what and like a couple of screws that are barely holding it together. I have no idea. I've never seen what's underneath the stage. But I do know that Joel and Mark and Bryce helped to build it and I trust that they built it well. So I have faith to walk up here and not just talk about it, but actually stand on it. Enough faith to jump on it. 
Would I be standing on the stage if I didn't have faith? Heck no. <laughs> if I didn't trust those guys, if I didn't think they knew what they were doing, I wouldn't be standing up on the stage. I'd be down on the concrete floor, the earth. Like I'm down there, you know what I'm saying? If, what if I had weak faith? Where would I be? I'd be right on the edge, wondering Every creak that I hear, every little shift that I think I feel, I'm right on the edge and I'm waiting to jump off. If I don't think I can really trust it, if my faith is weak, it's going to actually distract me from doing the very thing that I'm supposed to do, which is teaching this message. I'll be always worried about what I'm doing, but also what's happening underneath me. But if I have strong faith, I walk up on here. And I do. I got strong faith in this stage. I've been on it before, know the people that built it, that's the kind of faith that we're talking about. It's an active faith. It's not just a gut feeling, although I feel pretty good about it. Not just a mental assent to a certain amount of beliefs. Oh, I know uh, how Bryce builds things. I know the type of woods and screws and things that he uses to put it together. All right, that's all true too. But it's an action. I still got at one point got to walk up those stairs and stand on this thing. Same thing is true for all of us. We have to live by faith. You're going to, after this, by faith, go get in your car and expect it to start. By faith, you're going to believe you're going to have some food to eat afterwards, especially if you're in college, because now you're like, yo, I'm sticking around and getting me some good food from TLC, right? By faith, we all live our lives by faith. The question is, uh, is not, do you have faith? It's who or what do you put your faith in? The question is not, do you have faith? It's who or what do you put your faith in? I'm going to illustrate this uh, some things that I, that I hear more and more these days uh, with one of my uh, favorite movies. Take a look at this clip. I'm a little concerned right now about your salvation and stuff. How come you have not been baptized? Because I never got around to it, okay? I don't know why you always have to be judging me. Because I only believe in science. But tonight, we are going up against Satan's caveman. And I just thought it would be a good idea if you... <laughs> Did you hear the phrase that Esqueletor, that's a little skinny guy, said? He said, I don't know why you always have to be judging me because I believe in science. A little earlier in the movie, he says, I don't believe in God. I only believe in science. That's actually, I really appreciate that. It's, it's an honest answer. In fact, there's a whole lot of folks that if you talk to them today, they would say something similar in our city. It's a different place to grow up in GR today than it was 20, 30 years ago. Now, I, I, I'll, I'll admit, folks that are my age and older, okay, we still think Grand Rapids is some sort of a buckle on the Bible belt in West Michigan. For those of you that are under the age of 35, our city is no different than Portland, Oregon, New York City, fill in the blank, LA. The things that you're experiencing on the regular, what you have to walk through and how you have to defend or at least think through your faith, like that's just, it's a different world than your Many of your parents or grandparents 
have experienced. And I know folks that would say, yeah, yeah I don't, man, I don't believe that. I, I just, like, I can't. Like, 2,000 years ago, really, and, like, this thing and that thing, and, like, the, I'm supposed to believe that. The dude was in a fish for three days and then, like, got spit out. And, like, what's up with that? And they got questions. And so they're like, no, I believe in science. And, and, and what they mean by that, honestly, is they're saying that they simply hold to a different interpretation of reality than, say, this interpretation of reality. But it's still faith. Nonetheless, um, brilliant Calvin philosopher, James K.A. Smith. Got a couple Calvin folks. You know, I told you I was going to give you all a shout out. James K.A. Smith. <laughs> okay, easy. <laughs> uh, he's a brilliant mind and loves Jesus. Uh, we actually did a series on one of his books uh, a few years ago because it was, we thought it was so valuable for how we think about uh, some things. He said this. He said, the question isn't whether you're going to believe, but who. It's not merely about what to believe, but who to entrust yourself to. Do you really want to trust yourself? Do we really think that humanity is our best bet? Do we really think that we are the answer to our problems, we who've generated all of them? Mm. James is going hard. This is actually the invitation of Jesus. The invitation of Jesus is to put our faith in him, in his life, in his gospel, his death, resurrection, and coming return. That is the invitation. It is a faith-filled invitation, but it is no more faith-filled than believing in science. Faith is an action. That means that it's a muscle that needs to be trained. It's a muscle that has to grow. Every obstacle we face is actually an opportunity for that to actually grow. Uh, you're going to see mature faith as Jesus had it in a person's demeanor. Okay? People that have mature faith are not easily phased. They are at ease. They are at peace. They are relaxed. They are confident and they are joyful. They have an unshakable trust that everything will be fine even when everything isn't fine. There are not very many mature faith-holding people here at TLC. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just simply sharing a reality. I've been following Jesus for longer than most of you have been alive. And I am not there. This is one of the reasons that Jesus told me I need to really dive into this more and more. One of the reasons that Jesus said, I need my church to hear this, Torn. Why he said, I want you to preach this sermon today. Because there is an invitation for us to grow our faith and it is needed and necessary. And friends, I'm just telling you, I'm on this journey with you and I want it. I want to live a life of love as Jesus defined it and described it and lived it. And I know that it is often my fears that hold me back from that. And it is faith that allows me to conquer those fears. And friends, we've got to be people who are willing to recognize where we're at and keep asking God to grow us more and more into this way. So how are we supposed to do it? I was going to call this message, uh, I was going to call it the three levels of faith. 
actually, James Fowler uh, kind of came up with these ideas like back in the 70s. Uh, Harvard psychologist, really brilliant dude. But uh, John Mark actually kind of took those uh, five levels and kind of broke them down into three that I think actually match up a little bit better uh, with what I see in Scripture. Uh, you could actually take the concepts that I'm about to talk about right now. You're not going to find it in, you know, Ephesians chapter 6 or uh, Matthew 22. or It's not like you're going to find, here's the three levels of faith, said Jesus. Uh, no, but what you will find is that you could look at almost any biography in all of Scripture, from Moses to Abraham to Job to Peter, Paul, and Mary, and you could overlay these ideas right onto each one of their stories and see how true that it is. All truth is God's truth. And this is one of those areas that I think theologically helps us understand what God is trying and seeking to do in our lives. Now, I was going to call it the three uh, stages of faith, but I know there's a bunch of millennials and Gen Zers in here, and y'all are always talking about leveling up. So we're calling this thing Level Up. Y'all can get a chance to level up and move to the next level of faith today. Ladies and gentlemen, level one faith is simply this. It is the faith of religion. Level one faith is the faith of religion. Now, instantly, as soon as I say that, everybody's like, ugh, gross, I don't want that kind of faith. Religion, ew, icky, I'm not religious. I'm, I have a relationship, which I've said the very same thing, right? I'm not religious, but I got a relationship. All right, cool, that's fine and all, but it's kind of hogwash. Uh, I've realized that myself. Yes, I get the differences of what we're trying to talk about, but let me give us a real definition of religion, and I think that will help us understand it a little bit better. Religion, best defined as a set of beliefs that help define who we are, what life is all about, and how we should then live, okay? That's a good definition of religion. Uh, That also means that every single person in the world not only lives by faith, but also is religious. Every single one of us, okay? We often see religion in a negative light, like it's a whole bunch of rules to follow rather than a relationship. But that's not a fair way to talk about the, the religion of Scripture. Or, quite honestly, the religion of Jesus. Okay? The other thing I want to say is the faith of religion is, level one faith is where everybody starts. Nobody is born at level two. <laughs> all right? We all start here. It's not a bad place to start. It's not even a bad place to be. Just understand that even though many of us in this room are probably at a level one faith, God is so excited that you're there, but he also refuses to leave you there. So, in discipleship to Jesus, it's essentially a way of relating to God in level one faith that is often kind of seen as a quid pro quo, all right? Like, if I do this, then God will fill in the blank, all right? So if I live for Jesus, then God should make sure that bad things don't happen to me. Or if I put my faith in Jesus, then I will go to the good place when I die. Or if I tithe, then God will bless me with a good job and more money. Or if I don't have sex before marriage, then God will bless me with a great sex life. Those are level one faith ideas. We often kind of hear these uh, first level of faith kind of talked about as biblical principles for living. And they are. They are biblical principles for living. And I'm all for biblical principles for living. These are not necessarily bad things at all. But we run into trouble, and hear me out, when they become an attempt to use God to engineer the circumstances of our lives to our desired end and not his. 
just another human attempt to minimize pain and maximize pleasure. It's just done under the guise of Christianity. This is kind of uh, what John Mark called a, uh, a Proverbs level of faith. Do you guys know the book of Proverbs? It's wisdom literature, okay? Uh, did you know that the book of Proverbs uh, was one of the most hotly contested books on whether it would be included in the canon of scripture? I didn't know this until recently. Proverbs was one of the, like, they, there was tons and tons of debate on whether Proverbs would be included in scripture. This is like a few thousand years ago. This is why. If you read Proverbs as it was intended to be, as a book of general wisdom principles, it's incredibly insightful. You've heard some of these Proverbs. Train up a child in the way that they should go, and when they are old, they will not depart from it. Right? Or uh, um, diligent hands bring plenty, but lazy hands bring want. If you read Proverbs as a book of promises, though, it's simply not true. I know hardworking people work harder than I do that still want and are poor and without. I know parents that are way better than me who love Jesus and love their kids and their kids grew up to not follow Jesus in the way that they had hoped. Proverbs are generally true. That's what wisdom literature is. But they are not always true. I don't know what the split is. Maybe like 80-20, right? 80% of the time, yeah, spot on, man. You do these things, this is what happens. But that 20% will kill you. At some point, a formulaic approach to God will let you down. Level one faith. If I do this, then God will do this. A formulaic approach to God will at some point let you down. A crisis will come and God will not rescue you from it. He will not save you from it. You will do the right thing, and instead of being rewarded, you will be punished. Jesus actually said this would happen. You will go through a season of pain and suffering, and instead of feeling close to God, you will wonder where he is. It will feel like a desert. Jesus experienced a desert as well. When crisis comes, and it will, you will have three options when it comes to level one faith. Option number one, you will step back from your faith. Uh, we live in a, in a time um, where uh, so many folks that I know are, are deconstructing their faith. There is healthy deconstruction and there is unhealthy deconstruction. Uh, you cannot move from level one faith to level two without some deconstruction. We have to move away from a formulaic view of God. But way too often I see people with a level one faith that won't allow God to mature it. And when that crisis comes and all of a sudden what they thought God was supposed to do doesn't happen and they step away from faith. The Bible says, uh, calls it falling away. Uh, Jesus actually uh, even talked about this in Mark 4. He said when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. When the formula doesn't work anymore, they didn't actually have faith in God. They had just enough faith to get what they wanted from God. Level one faith, when it comes to a crisis, you will either step back, but there's another option. And it's what a lot of folks actually do. You can step over, step aside, 
and compartmentalize your faith. Uh, I, I find it amazing the amount of incoherence that we Americans are willing to live with. Like, for real. Um, for folks in our community area that say that, like, man, I can't really believe in, can't really believe in, in God, I just, I'm going to put my faith in science. A number of them would uh, probably view their science as like, well, there was this bang, and uh, then like over millions of years, evolution happened, and somehow just like amazingly, uh, little globs of nothingness became somethingness that then grew up into, you know, humanity. But all throughout, it was always about the survival of the fittest. Fine. Like, that's one way to interpret reality. There's just the survival of the fittest. But the fact then that those same folks are often some of the most hardcore about caring about human rights and talking about Black Lives Matter, to me, is like just kind of shockingly incoherent. I'm not afraid to talk about human rights. In fact, I'm passionate about talking about human rights. I'm not afraid to say Black Lives Matter. I'm passionate about it. And don't get it twisted, I'm not a fan of the organization. But the phrase was around well before the organization ever existed and came around for the right reason. The reason that I'm willing to talk about either one of those two things is because I believe that we were created in the image of God and therefore each person has inherent value. Therefore, my care about human rights and saying black lives matter has everything to do with a coherent view of what I think of humanity. Has nothing to do with the color of your skin. Has nothing to do with what kind of uh, 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 progress you bring to the economy. Has everything to do with being imbued with the image of the creator. Now, let's not also get it twisted and just try to bust on our science-believing friends. We do it all the time as Christians too. We take our faith and when something difficult comes... We don't want to lose our faith, but we just kind of set it off to the side and then live our lives however we feel like living. We know that real life actually comes through sacrificial serving. We know that that's where life is found, and yet we don't want to serve anybody because it's going to mess up our schedules. Yeah, but weekends and the fall tea, like I can't serve with kids ministry because they're going to need me every other week, and I need to go to be able to go to the apple mill or wherever it is we want to go. We have the same kind of incongruent things. We're like, well, that's where faith comes. But like, yeah, but I can't let it mess with me. So we put it off to the side. I'll stop being mean. I'll try to be nice now. There is another option. Option one, you step back from faith. We give it up. Option two is we step aside and we live with the incoherence. But there is a better option. It is option three, and that is to step up into the next level of faith. The next level of faith, the second level, is the faith of desperation. This is when that crisis hits and things do not go the way that you anticipate or expect. The diagnosis comes and it's a death sentence. The phone call comes and it's the worst case scenario. The prayer you have prayed for years, no decades, goes unanswered. When the plan falls apart, when the dream dies, when the relationship is actually over and you're forced to admit that it was a failure, we have an invitation to level up to the faith of desperation. This is exactly what the man has in Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, starting at verse 20. So they brought him, that is the child of the man, when the spirit 
saw Jesus and immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. Sorry. It's often thrown him into the fire or water to kill him. And I love what he says. But if you can do anything, if you can do anything, Jesus, take pity on us and help us. The man's at desperation. He has to take a risk. It is always a risk to move from level one faith to level two. But he sees no other way, and so he takes a risk. And let me tell you what the risks were for him. He lives in the ancient Near East in an honor and shame culture. So for him, this is a massive risk of social stigma. Jesus is already on the outs with the religious and social leaders of his time. If he goes to Jesus for help, he risks putting himself in the same category and getting pushed out into the edges of society. He's risking another wave of disappointment. How many times has he begged God to do this? How many times has he come to the religious leaders and asked if they could do anything? How many times has he gone to the temple hoping beyond hope that something would happen? The man is in desperation, so he risks it all to come to Jesus. And I love what Jesus says, verse 23. If you can, Jesus asked. Everything is possible for one who believes. You see what Jesus is trying to do right here in this moment? He's inviting the man into this next level of faith. He says, if you can, everything's possible for somebody to believe. Do you believe? Will you put your trust in me? Even when things aren't going the way that you into, will you step into this? And I love the honesty of this father who says, immediately, he exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. In other words, oh Jesus, I want this so bad, but I'm not sure I know how to anymore. I've begged for this, I've cried out for this, I've tried everything, and I just don't know, but God, I've got whatever I've got you can have, like the little tiny bit. I believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. And this story has a happy ending. Jesus heals the boy. But what if he didn't? Uh, What if the boy's father actually experienced what Jesus experienced just a couple weeks later? Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is in the garden just hours before he's going to be crucified and he says, Father, if it is all possible Please take this cup from me. That word, if it is all, if is if it is at all possible, is the exact same word that the boy's father says to Jesus. If you can do anything. In the Greek, it's the exact same word. The father asks Jesus for this thing. And now Jesus is asking his father. And guess what? Jesus experiences silence. Just a few hours later, Jesus is hanging on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you know what? The skies stayed 
dark. There's an even higher level of faith than even the faith of desperation, and it's the third level, and it is the faith of surrender. This is where you're not believing in God for any particular outcome, you're just believing in God. It's what Jesus said when he said, not my will, but your will be done. It's Job saying in Job 42, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I repent in dust and ashes. Uh, when Paul says in Philippians chapter one, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's the faith of surrender. Doesn't mean we no longer have desires for particular outcomes or that you can't continue to pray for those things that you care about, but rather we are settled in our spirit like Job who said, though God slay me, yet will I trust him. It is a willingness to release to God all of the things that we have attached ourselves to. John Mark Comer said this, he said, the paradox of Jesus' teaching is as long as you need your life to go a certain way to be happy and at peace, you will never be happy and at peace. Uh, we in America, I grew up in church, we, we usually call these things idols, right? These things that promise peace or happiness or fulfillment, but they can only end up delivering anxiety and misery. An idol can never give you the things that you're longing for, that you hope for. Even good idols, like an awesome spouse or great kids or a fulfilling job, they still cannot provide the things that our souls long for. All of our attachments can, and at some point, will be stripped away. It's one of the most beautiful, harrowing things that God allows and sometimes does in our lives, right? Either from a betrayal of someone, a crisis that we experience, a tragedy that we walk, to, walk through, a pandemic, a recession, and ultimately, the final thing that will strip everything is death. And the closer we get to it, the more we begin to recognize this stripping away. The way to think of the journey we take with Jesus is that when we allow him to, he will slowly burn off our attachments. Not because he hates us, but because he wants to move us into a more mature faith. He tests us, proves us, refines us. So I wanna close by simply talking about how we can actually then level up in our faith, how we mature. There's two ways. One is an active way, things that we're supposed to do. And then the second is passive. We can't do anything about it. It's the things that Jesus does in our lives. So I'm gonna throw some of these up on the screen. Uh, you're gonna see them up there and you can just pop them all up. You don't even need to wait for me. You can take a picture of this. I'll just describe them as we're going. But the first is simply step out in faith. We all have an active role that we're supposed to take in this to some extent. So step out, take a risk, ask and trust God for something. Are you lonely? Are you desiring community? Not a bad thing, okay? But if that's you, take a risk. Sign up to be a part of Rooted or a local group. Take the risk. Uh, maybe you're too attached to your schedule and you know it. You like your me time. Nothing wrong with a little bit of me time, but that often dominates. Well, I, I like, I'll give some something else later if I've got like enough left over. And maybe God's saying, yo, you're too attached to that idol. That's never gonna fulfill you anyway. All the things you're hoping to find, you're not gonna find. You're gonna find it in laying your life down. So your risk is I'm going to sign up to work with the second grade 
elementary classroom at the 11 o'clock, which I hear has like 12 boys in it right now, and they got some crazy energy. So uh, that's going to be your moment. You're like, yo, this is my, this is my time, all right? Uh, maybe you're wondering what your purpose is. For you, the risk is to sign up to become a local guide or to sign up to get a local guide so that you can learn from someone else how to discern how God's wired you. Maybe it's that you're too attached to your finances. You're often feeling anxious about it. Am I going to get enough hours? Do I have enough money to pay my bills? Maybe what you need to do is start tithing. You're like, yo, that's the stupidest thing ever. Yeah, maybe it is. But maybe it's the way that you're going to learn that everything you have is a gift from God. And he always gives you enough and what you need. And you can start to learn how to discipline yourself to live on a little less than you bring in as a way to remind and say to God how grateful you are for what he's done in your life. Two, practice gratitude. All right? Start a gratitude jar. Drop something in there every day. Or if that's too much, drop it in on Friday. Friday's gratitude day. I was saying in the first service, I wish that there was a day of the week that started with a G, like Friday. Then you could have gratitude Friday, but it doesn't. So gratitude Friday is going to have to work. Number three, be around people of faith. Look, friends, in Grand Rapids, Grand Rapids is not a beautiful incubator for your faith in Jesus, I promise you. If you're under the age of 35, you know this all too well. It's hard. The conversations that are happening, the ways that you're being challenged, the difficulties uh, of things that are being talked about and, and what's expected of you and how you're supposed to act and react. And therefore, you need to be around other people of faith. There are times when I'm in this place because I need it. I don't believe the song that I'm singing because I'm just not in a place where I'm feeling it's been a hard week. And I need to hear all of you sing behind me as I sit up here to remind myself that right now, God, maybe I'm not feeling it, but somebody else is out here, and I need to borrow a little bit of their faith. Number four, memorize a passage of Scripture. Number five, ask God to increase your faith, and then wait. You can't force this, but I promise you it's a prayer that God wants to answer. And if you're willing to ask it, and, but you better, you better be ready. I'm just saying... God wants to grow it. The last thing is that there is a passive way that this happens as well, okay? God takes the initiative. God tests our faith by the things that he allows and the things that he brings. And it's not a test like you have in school where you have to learn all the stuff, then you take the test. Now, the way that it works in Jesus' land is that you actually take the test and then you have the opportunity to learn the lesson. When our faith is tested, what we really believe actually comes to the surface. We may think we don't need a lot of money to be happy until the stock market crashes and we lose it. We may think that our identity is not rooted in our job until we lose our job and instantly have to start looking for something else. We may think that we love our children as they are until they don't follow our dreams and desires and we get angry and afraid. Jesus is slowly, gently, but lovingly removing those things that we attach ourselves to that are not him, that we might begin to find him. Keating wrote this, the spiritual journey is not a success story. It is a series of humiliations of the false self. Mm, I love that. A series of humiliations of the false self. All these things that I wish were true of me. All these ways that I want to present myself to you. And God in his generous love strips those false pieces of myself away that my true self can be known and loved by God. That's how God wants to grow us in our faith. 
We relent, we surrender, we stay faithful to Jesus. He is our good shepherd. Therefore, we lack nothing. So whatever comes, we can wake up and say, it's okay. Jesus, let this not just be words that I speak. I want you to grow my faith. I have a long way to go, Father. There's no doubt about it. We all do. But that is what we desire. So we give you permission this morning to start us on the journey maturing our faith in Jesus' name.